Welcome to Neo Chats, an interview-style podcast focusing on educating neonatal nurses, caring for newborns and their families, hosted by Jenna Morton. It is a project of the Canadian Association of Neonatal Nurses, a nonprofit organization committed to the health and well-being of newborns and their families. Pregnancy is a complicated journey, even when everything goes smoothly. Pregnancy during a pandemic? That's a whole other level of complicated. To delve into what we know about the medical implications of COVID-19 for pregnant women, as well as the various personal concerns for both patients and care providers, we're joined by Dr. Chelsea Elwood. Dr. Elwood is Reproductive Infectious Specialist with the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to NeoChats. Thank you. Let's just jump right in with setting the scene as to what we know now, which is June 2020, in terms of COVID-19 and its impacts on pregnancy. Okay, for sure. We can happy to chat about that. Actually, I think to understand where we are now in June, we need to go back to actually when we started this whole conversation. So pandemics in pregnancy, this is not the first pandemic we have done. This is not going to be the last pandemic we will have over the decades of my career. I just know that to be true. Um, and so although this particular version of SARS is new to us, like COVID-19 and SARS coronavirus too, um, the concept of viruses in pregnancy, the core principles and under understanding of how uh, they affect pregnancy have been around for a long time. So the, the idea of infectious disease in pregnancy is not new, and we can use a lot of those baseline principles and translate them and apply them um, to our current understanding of uh, COVID-19. And really what we have learned and, and one of the things we know is that, you know, it's behaving like a respiratory virus. It just happens to be a respiratory virus that's never been seen before. It's taking advantage of a population that has no immunity, no vaccine, and no treatment but it's not mystical, magical, and crazy as far as viruses go. So because of that, we can feel fairly comfortable as we work through it that we're collecting data appropriately, we're making recommendations as appropriately as we can. One of the big challenges has been managing the fast pace of information that's come through and information change, the need for rapid publication of data, but also the challenges in making sure that data is good and pre-reviewed data that is quality that we can actually work and change recommendations based on. And we don't make recommendations based on, you know, a single study. What we look at is a body of literature and a history and an understanding of viruses in pregnancy as well as bacteria in pregnancy. So just core infectious disease principles. So when we started the pandemic, what we had for reference was SARS-CoV-1, which is the original SARS, right? Um, as well as MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus. And we were a little concerned because the, the outcomes in those pregnancies showed higher rates of preterm birth and higher rates of adverse outcomes for moms. And uh, what we have seen is a lot of that potentially is due to reporting bias in our understanding of the literature. Because at the time, those types of patients were the, that were reported on are the ones that are admitted to hospital. And by definition, if you get admitted to hospital, you're usually sicker than everybody else. So we didn't have large global pandemics and outbreaks with testing, and we were only seeing case reports and case series for those who were very unwell. So one of the nice things or, or bad things, it depends on how you look at it, is as we've worked through the pandemic, we have done 
buckets of testing. We have lots more information coming out and we have uh, entire countries that are doing universal screening approaches uh, when, and entire countries that have broad testing capabilities. So we're getting a, a broader sense of what's happening in pregnancy. And what we're seeing now is that actually it's behaving much like us, most other respiratory viruses, where the vast majority of pregnant women, somewhere in the about 90% range roughly, um, have very mild illness and don't need to be admitted to hospital and don't end up in critical care. And that because of that, those initial really high preterm birth rates that we thought might happen are actually lower than we initially thought. And really, it's about how sick mom gets. So if you are critically unwell and you get admitted to hospital, and really sick, then there's a high likelihood that you will run into a medical complication like preterm birth, but that's really no different than any other disease. So for reference, kind of what we're looking at right now is, is for example, we're seeing preterm birth rates where you have broad testing criteria that range from sort of like six to 15%. Um, if you look at the average preterm birth rate in the province of BC where I am, it's 8%. And if you look at the preterm birth rate for women living with HIV, it's 18%. So that kind of gives you some context of where this is sitting um, in terms of the pandemic. I think one of the other big questions is always, will my baby get the virus from me, right? I think that's the question that really plays on the mind of obstetrical care providers, neonatal care providers, and moms and parents-to-be. We have had literally thousands of women who are pregnant with this virus. Um, and we have seen one extraordinary rare exceptional circumstance where there was possible vertical transmission to a baby. And that was the circumstance where the mom had a known immune system disorder. The baby was born with a similar immune system disorder and she happened to deliver right in the heat of her disease. And so I think at, logically we can look at that and say, any virus at that stage, I don't care if it's, you know, the first SARS or chicken pox or any of them could possibly transmit in that rare and unique circumstance. Absolutely. But if you looked at the vast majority of the thousands of pregnancies have delivered, there's been no evidence of vertical transmission. And there's none of the characteristics of this virus that make it behave like it should vertically transmit. It's not like our other viruses that we know about, like Zika. We haven't forgotten about Zika. I know the world has, but we haven't as reproductive infectious disease specialists. I still get asked that question, although there's less international travel now, so I get asked that question less. Um, but it doesn't behave like that. So we think it actually can be very reassuring from a vertical transmission rate for those who have the you know, mild to moderate disease. And there may be exceptional circumstances where there's a possibility of transmission, but that is the exception and not the rule, okay? Um, so I think that's kind of how the literature has evolved since we started the pandemic um, and we kind of knew about this back in January is when we started having conversations. Um, I think it hit the world really hard in about March um, but that's kind of where we've gotten to and we've really set ourselves up in Canada. We have something called um, Can COVID is a pregnancy study across Canada where we're actually surveilling both pregnancy as well as neonatal outcomes and we have all provinces and all territories reporting out all data for pregnant women um, with COVID-19. You make it all sound so comforting. To put it in perspective is always such an important thing to do but it's still there's still that emotional reaction that patients and parents are going to have and that healthcare providers are going to have to deal with. What advice do you have to the healthcare providers who are interacting with parents who have questions. Infectious disease has historically always created fear 
and you look back in history and it's a fascinating history, medical history to review back to, you know, outbreaks of the plague and syphilis. Like it's just fascinating to see how infectious disease really um, makes people uncomfortable. And it's a little bit of the unknown. It's a little bit of, you can't see it. It's not tangible. It's a, the ability of an infectious disease to, um, you know, break through a population in such a widespread way. I think all of those things historically still persist even in modern medicine today. Um, I think my biggest thing as an obstetrical care provider when I'm talking to patients is spending the time to explain to them those types of things. So explain to them why hand washing works and explain to them how the virus is transmitted and explain to people what we know about the virus and why you know wearing a mask is effective, but only effective if you wear it right and you wash your hands 10,000 times. Um, you know, why social distancing works. I mean, social distancing has been proven to work because of the way the virus transmits. Like if, if it was a, you know, airborne virus, then the two meter rule wouldn't fly. Like it just wouldn't work. And so why social distancing works? So I spend a lot of time with my patients explaining to them and trying to help them understand what the virus is, why it behaves like it is, how it's behaving, what we currently know, and making an honest confession that what I say today may change tomorrow. Because that is the truth. It may change this afternoon. So something might get published and I may send you an email letter and say, hey, I have to retract that comment because the world has changed in two hours. So that's the reality of things. I also spent a lot of time for them explaining and that, you know, maternity care and obstetrical care will continue no matter what. This is a non-optional event, right? You made the decision to get pregnant nine months ago. You will have a baby. It's just going to happen. And so because of that nature, as obstetrical care providers and, and neonatal care providers, we just go to work and we find a way to make it safe and we find a way to make it work the best way we can and still provide family-centered care because that is our primary goal because there is such value in all of the things that we talk about immediate skin to skin bonding breastfeeding you know having a support person in labor not being isolated during that stressful time um, and that really is the at the forefront of our minds as well as keeping you know, patient safe and care provider safe. And we try our very darndest to blend all of that together. So in a, in a time where hospitals were completely excluding support people, most maternity wards said, no, this is really important. You know, partners need to be there. And so we found a way to make that work through screening, you know, question screening at the door. But I think that people need to understand that that is always our priority, um, is keeping families, you know, supported and together as much as possible. In a lot of ways, the neonatal and the, the maternal health world was very well prepared to deal with a pandemic because of these types of things that were already in place in the, you know, especially with the neonatal population, you know, we're so used to sanitizing and, and being, you know, a little bit of a, a germaphobe and all of that. And so it hasn't been, it doesn't seem like it's been as much of a shift as it has for some I, other people. Yeah, I, I totally, and I think the, we can't shut down. We can't. It's not optional. So because of that, you learn to adapt very quickly and you do your very darndest and absolutely, I'm sure mistakes are made and policies are changed and all that kind of stuff, but you're doing your darndest because you can't not, right? I can't just close my doors to my office and not see pregnant women. That doesn't really work. Um, and so because of that, I think we are forced to learn to adapt very quickly and do our very best in any situation, whatever that situation or, or outbreak or whatever it is. Speaking of adapting, what do you see coming in the future in the next little bit? Are there, are there 
things and developments that we should be looking for you know obviously research is constantly happening now but as more comes available are there certain developments that we're looking for as milestones so i think the the number one that everyone wants to know about is a vaccine and the reality is most vaccines are a year to a year and a half down the road even in emergency situations um we are strongly advocating as we always have but in particular in this circumstance that pregnant women be a part of vaccine development and vaccine trials um taking into account all of the safety things that you have to do for any vaccine trial but we really think that this is a population uh who should be participating in that and have access to that um and so as we see vaccine trials come through particularly here in Canada, and particularly one of the focuses of all the RID docs and RID repro groups is, is really to push for pregnant women to have the opportunity to participate in those trials um, in order to be able to confer potential protection as we do with other vaccines to neonates who were born, right? So we universally now recommend Tdap vaccination uh, for the pertussis component and the protection of neonates in the first two months of life. So that is not a new concept at all in any way, shape or form. We routinely recommend influenza vaccine for both mom and baby in those circumstances. Um, so the potential maternal and neonatal benefits for both of those things is significant. So we're actively advocating for that and we'll continue to advocate for that because uh, we think it's very important. Um, the other thing that I get asked all the time is serologic testing. What is the role of serologic testing? How are we going to go about serologic testing? All those things. Serologic testing is a bit of a, a conundrum to unpack in a sense. So what serologic testing has the opportunity to do potentially, understanding that we have to validate platforms, you have to validate manufacturing of platforms, um, you have to validate whether uh, you know, everyone produces an immune response to the virus. You have to figure out if that immune response persists. You have to figure out if that immune response is even useful and confers protection. So there's so many questions that have to be answered about any serologic testing before we can declare it a useful test. Um, and so one of the things that we're, we're also advocating for is pregnant women to be participating in serologic testing because there's some unique changes about pregnancy that make serologic testing both challenging and beneficial. And we have a lot of people within our group who are poised on both the national and global level advocating and for pregnant women as well as neonates to be participating in that. Um, everybody wants to know if I had it and I get an immune response, am I immune? And the answer is we don't know that yet. So I think that we will see that evolve probably in the next six to nine months. And when we will see the biggest answers to those questions come out is probably during the quote unquote second wave, whatever that second wave ends up looking like as we move into a second half of, of a respiratory uh, season, because we will do another respiratory season. We just know that. Um, and the symptoms of COVID-19 overlap with influenza and RSV and a million other things. So whether the second wave is driven by COVID-19 itself or whether it's just driven by a respiratory illness season, there'll be buckets of testing that has to go on and all the same types of conversations again in the fall. Um, but that will probably be the opportunity to figure out if any of those immune correlates of protection is what we call them, where that antibody response you developed the first time around actually protects you the second time around. We'll be able to potentially get some answers from that. So I think those are two huge things going back to kind of the emotional uh, side of things, we are very acutely aware of what we're calling the unintended consequences of shutdown, lockdown, COVID-19, changes in practice. 
the World Health Organization and a number of other organizations and publications and us as well are very clear that this affects vulnerable populations far more um, than not. And vulnerable populations include pregnant women and children and neonates. And we're seeing, you know, globally high rates of interpartner violence, violence against children, uh, shutdowns of schools and all of those implications and what that means long term. Uh, we need to be very careful and very thoughtful about how we manage those and continue to monitor those. Um, we've made some changes to our antenatal visit schedule based on the evidence that's out there, and we need to follow and make sure that that doesn't have any unintended consequences. It, you know, we moved to the evidence-based World Health Organization global approach to antenatal visit schedules, but we also live um, in a high-income country where we had more visits scheduled. And whether there's any unintended consequences from that, we don't have an answer yet. But we are poised to, to be able to gain that information and also knowledge translate that rapidly and make policy change if we need to, if we are seeing unintended consequences. But I think it's something that we need to be aware of. Um, there are lots of studies coming out reporting higher rates of anxiety and depression in pregnant women during the pandemic and outbreak. Um, there's lots of reports on our pediatric side of, of similar type issues uh, from my pediatric colleagues. So I think we need to be smart about how we follow this through and thoughtful and careful about it. What thoughts do you want to leave with whoever it is that's listening, whether it's our healthcare providers or if there happens to be someone who's pregnant who's, who's listening because they're trying to, to quell those fears and get the information? What, what parting thought do you want to leave with us? I think there's a couple of things. So one is around family planning. So for patients, you know, I get asked that question a lot. Um, and we're currently recommending really you should plan your family when it's appropriate for you. Pandemic aside or as a part of your decision-making process, if it's the right time to have a family, then you have a family, okay? If it's not the right time, then don't have a family. Um, but the pandemic should really, um, and fears of infectious disease should not be driving your decision-making in that process. And for patients as well, just our lens is is patient and family-centered care. It always has been, always will be, and we will continue to advocate for that. For healthcare providers as well as patients, uh, there's a lot. We have a pretty active reproductive infectious disease group and, and um, neonatal infectious disease group, and we really are involved in a lot of policy making and decision making. And you are not forgotten. We are working very hard to make sure that the voice at the table of uh, women's women's health, maternity, neonatal care is not lost in the adult world, which often happens, um, and have been very surprised at how engaged other uh, policy groups have been in having that voice participate. Um, and so we've been able to make and get really get a seat at the table in a way that we haven't been in the past. Um, and we're continuing to knowledge translate as quickly and as, as we possibly can, but also recognize that that means that things will change and things will change quickly. So it's a bit of a balance and an information overload that what I say today may not be accurate tomorrow and it may not even be accurate in an hour. Of the uh, catchphrase for life these days, isn't it? Everything can change on a dime, and we just have to be able to to understand that, accept it, and keep moving. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this. No problem. Happy to. Dr. Chelsea Elwood is a reproductive infectious disease specialist with the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of British Columbia. 
NeoChats is a project of the Canadian Association of Neonatal Nurses. This series is supported by an unrestricted educational grant by Pampers. The content producer and host is Jenna Morton. Technical production by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub. For more information on the association, visit our website at www.neonatalcan.ca or our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages.